This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 4th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A Panamanian law firm, a hacker from no one knows where, a Swedish TV interviewer, and now, of course, add it all together, you get mass protests in Reykjavik, Iceland. The law firm is Mossack Fonseca. They are the Panamanian law firm, meaning from Panama. They provided services which included setting up tax havens and shell companies for 70 or so heads of state. One was owned by the Icelandic prime minister, Sigmundur... Gunlugsen and a Swedish TV show asked Prime Minister Sigmundur Gunlugsen about this. Conveniently, the conversation was had in English, and here's how Gunlugsen answered or tried to stammer out an answer. Mr. What can you tell me about a company called Vintris? Well, it's uh, um, a. Then Gunlundsson drops the English and the niceties and begins accusing the journalists of bad motives before he storms out of the interview. You won't be able to hear what he's saying, but you could get some of the tone. So upwards of 10,000 people are now protesting in Reykjavik, throwing yogurt at the parliament, which is all the more painful because the BBC's website, and I think in Iceland itself, spells yogurt with the H. So that's Y-O-G-H-U-R-T. And while 10,000 people, actually, that doesn't sound insignificant. Consider this. In Iceland, that's between 2 and 3% of the population. It would be like 9 million Americans showing up to protest Congress and throwing lots of yogurt. Fruit on the bottom, indeed. The Panama Papers, as they're known, this is not going to end in Iceland. As I said, 70-something current and former heads of state were using the services of the Mossack Fonseca firm. It's now being investigated by several countries. They don't know where the leak came from, who the hacker was. I am no international hacking expert. But I would take a close look at Panama's second biggest international law firm. Ask yourself in these cases, who benefits? Maybe Panama's second biggest law firm is about to substantially increase market share. On the show today, I spiel about the upcoming vote in Wisconsin, a place where they advise you, don't be strange, and yet they go ahead and they're strange. But first, you've been publicly shamed. John Ronson's here to, I don't know, help, but certainly document it. So the internet, it enables and it disables. It enables the quick dissemination of information. It enables everyone to know about one thing that someone did. But it seems to disable that part of our brain that stops us from lashing out. It seems to disable 
that part of us that's sometimes called discretion. So as a result, here's what we get. The internet becomes an outrage machine. We lash out and shame isn't just something that's visited upon one person, but a society can concentrate its effort and make one person feel shame. This is the subject of a book, So You've Been Shamed, by John Ronson, who's the best-selling author of The Psychopath Test and Lost at Sea. Hi, John. Hey, Mike. So the first chapter I read in your book was, I think it was excerpted in The Times, and it was about Justine Sacco, who tweeted dumb tweets about... AIDS in South Africa, and the phenomenon, why she embodies this, you could have picked anyone that did something stupid on the internet, got shamed for it, paid the price, but I think what's so compelling is that there was a lag. She was on a plane, and she was off Twitter, and people were literally saying she doesn't know that her life's going to be ruined when she lands, and she landed, and her life was ruined, and was that bubble, that one part of it, a compelling part of the story to you? Yeah, because it was wrong for so many reasons. Firstly, the shaming of Justin Sacker was a shaming that everybody could get behind. And if you start to look at who was piling in on Justine that night, it was everybody from like misogynistic trolls <laughs> tweeting about how they wanted to rape her. And then, you know, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch. And then we'll find out if her skin color protects her from AIDS. I, I should explain that that wasn't a completely random insult. Her her tweet was going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, oh it was germane. Just kidding. I'm... Horrible, but germane. Yes. <laughs> but, but then so it was kind of misogynist and it was nice people like us, compassionate social justice people like us. Uh, and then it was hipsters. There was a tremendous number of hipsters got involved. So that in itself was extraordinary. And then the fact that she was asleep on a plane and unable to explain her joke. And instead of people saying, let's wait, everyone, let's just wait for the plane to land and then we'll hear her explanation. In fact, the opposite happened. It was like the wind behind the shaming sails was the fact that she was asleep and oblivious to her destruction. And people thought that was just fantastic. So all these hipsters in bars were tweeting, I'm so tired, I want to go to bed, but I just can't wait for her plane to land and see what happens when she turns on her phone and checks her Twitter inbox. The disproportionality of the response was something. But also, I feel that she was victimized she was victimized by this part of the internet culture, but she was victimized by something that you're not technically writing about, which is, you know, outrage, being outrageous, uh, lauding comedians who say the outrageous thing and push the limits. And she just happens not to be a, a professional comedian or be good at it in that instance. But we give a lot of latitude to Louis C.K., as we should. We give a lot of latitude to the professionals. She's trying to work in that space. I mean, I'm sure she could not possibly explain herself in 140 characters, but she she seems to be victimized on so many levels by the internet itself and what the internet means. Yeah. And then also when I come out with my story telling a kind of new, I guess, kind of new narrative about her, the kind of response is, is, is really interesting as well. I mean, most people got it and, and lots of people emailed her and said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry for what we did. It's funny. I was talking to a shamed person the other day. I've become a bit of a sort of shaming magnet. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're shamed flypaper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've been shamed. Here yeah. are your steps. You type in so you've been shamed. You see that John Ronson wrote a book. You get yeah. in touch with John Ronson. Exactly. I've had a yeah. lot of those. I've become my friend John Safran says I've become like a shaming imam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People look up and say, well, what about this person? Yeah. This guy killed a lion. What about him? Huh? Yeah, you could be the shame pope. <laughs> right. You yeah. wash away their sins. Yes. But anyway, that was a digression. So basically, I was talking to a shames person the other day and, and she said, and I've heard this a lot, she said like one of 
the things, one of the kind of weird sensations when this happens to you is just how alone you feel. You feel incredibly lonely. So when people started to email Justine and said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I made a mistake, that was sort of a psychologically good for her because, it, you know, to be objectified in that way is a, is a very kind of lonely experience. But then there was a whole bunch of people who read my story and like a machine wanting to eject a destabilizing factor, they just kind of went for me, which was kind of ridiculous because... If Your was, shame is to have defended her in yeah, their minds. Well, well, actually, my shame was to kind of point out the abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time that I've pointed out an abuse of power where I've been kind of got, which again was really interesting. It's like when the abuse of power is happening over there, you know, everyone's thrilled to have it pointed out. Yeah. But when the abuse of power is happening on social media... It, it's there's a kind of ferocious response. Right. I guess, you know, every villager who threw a uh, burning ember on the pyre of the witch can say to themselves, well, compared to this witch, I mean, what's one ember? And everyone who threw a stone at the harlot can say that too. And the same is with the internet. Like, one tweet, the mass of all those offensive is actually disproportionate power. Oh, oh, totally. And that's so interesting. You know, I mean, of course, the snowflake doesn't need to feel responsible for the avalanche. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, this is such an interesting story about about shifting power. So individually on social media, people tend to be quite powerless. Like out in the real world, marginalized communities and voiceless people are powerless to to a large extent. And then they go on social media, and then if we, and, and if everybody, if we all get together and destroy one person, we suddenly have kind of terrific power. If we say this person should be fired, yeah. that person gets fired. And then the mainstream media, like the kind of nerdy kid sucking up to the school bully, <laughs> goes along with it. And so social media now gets to set the agenda. And yet, when we're doing it, we still see ourselves as those powerless people that we are in the outside right. world. We're the Avengers, right? Yeah. We're the ones punching up. up. So let's talk about Joan Allaire, because my friend Dan Engber wrote about you writing about Joan Allaire, and he pointed out that his, for whatever shame has been visited upon him, and I do not like a disproportionate response, and I do think people should be able to rehab, has he really owned up to everything he did wrong? Joan Allaire? Yeah. Well, okay. Let me answer that question in a, in a different way. How you wish. So Jonah, yeah, Jonah brought out this new book called Imagine How Creativity Works, And in it, in the first chapter, he quotes Bob Dylan explaining that creativity is a hard thing to describe. It's just the sense that you've got something to say. So at home, the writer Michael Moynihan was reading this, who was a kind of Dylanologist, and he felt understandably reading this. He thought, when the fuck was Bob Dylan ever that helpful to a journalist? Like, Bob Dylan never would say anything like helpful like that. Bob Dylan was like an asshole to journalists. and Purposefully in, cryptic. Yeah. The man who wasn't there. Yes. And in fact, that sounds much more like the kind of thing Joan Alera might say about creativity. So so Michael emailed Jonah and Jonah basically emailed back to say, no, no, my quotes are right. It's history that's wrong. And I have special access to special Bob Dylan quotes that nobody else has ever seen. Jonah thought he could bluff his way out of it. And Michael carried on digging tenaciously. And it all unraveled. I think at one point Jonah said to Michael, I got some help from one of Dylan's managers and Michael realised Dylan only has one manager. So he wrote to this guy and the manager wrote back and said, I've never spoken to Jonah Lever. So that's when it all unravelled. And Jonah went from being this kind of buttoned down, preppy, superior pop science author to a, to a child. 
you know, pleading with Michael not to publish, phoning him like 20 times a day, 25 times a day. So, you know, for, for me, in answer to your question, this story isn't a story about me defending Joan O'Leary. This is a kind of fascinating story about what happens when, when somebody like Joan O'Leary is found out, the kind mm-hmm. of horror of being found out. And to me, that's a kind of dramatic fascinating story to tell about this kind of psychodrama between these two men. So the crux, what's the shame there? The shame in that story is the shame he felt. You weren't so much chronicling the shame visited upon him by a mob of angry journalists who thought their profession was wrong. No, no, absolutely yes. not. No, it's just, it's a, it's a terrible, gripping kind of human drama. That's why I wanted to tell that story. But something did happen later on, which I felt crossed a line. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, honestly, I felt what the, what I'm about to tell, I feel this crosses a line. Other people may listen to this and think this doesn't cross a line at all. So it's, it's a kind of people just have to make up their own minds. Actually, Michael said to me at one point, have you ever been in a situation where you could press send on a story and ruin somebody's life? If you press send on a story, you will destroy somebody's life. Have you ever been in that situation? And I said... I don't know. <laughs> and Michael said, well, if you ever are, don't do it. Because to Michael, the kind of agony of finding somebody out was almost as bad as the agony of being found out. Yeah. So, but Michael was right. Of course, Michael had to and press this send is an And this isn't May Lai. This is a journalist who plagiarized Yeah, quotes. but it was. I mean, you know, what Jonah did was yes. really dumb. Yes. So Michael did press send. And of course he should have. And the New Yorker fired Jonah. And of course he should have. And there was an outcry from people like your friend, Danny Langbar. And fine, you know, all of that is fine. But then something happened when I was with Jonah a few months later writing the story, which I think crossed the line, which is that Jonah gets the chance to publicly apologize for what he did at this lunch organized by the Knight Foundation, which is this journalist's mm-hmm. foundation. And Jonah didn't realize until he turned up that the Knight Foundation had erected a giant screen Twitter feed right next to him. So anybody watching at home, as Jonah was like, kind of begging for his life, you know, begging for another chance, the most important speech of his life, anybody watching at home could tweet their ongoing opinion of Jonah's pleas for forgiveness. And the tweet would appear in huge letters, not only right behind Jonah's head, but also in a second monitor screen, in his eyeline. Oh, right. Good. Because yeah. we'd hate for him not to be able to see this thing that's going to go so well. Right. Yes. Like, oh, I don't, I, you know what? I don't think the Knight Foundation did this because they're monstrous. <laughs> I think the Knight Foundation did this because they were just naive. And this was yeah. like this extraordinary moment, I think, in social media history where all of our, like, it's like, it's like the chapter in Animal Farm when, you know, I don't know, the dog kills the pig. <laughs> it's been a long time since I read Animal Farm. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? That, that moment when the beautiful egalitarian dream crashes into the kind of horrendous <laughs> reality. Uh, and basically what, what happens as Jonah is badly apologising, but yeah. not badly apologising, I, I think in an evasive way, but badly apologising because he's a kind of preppy, button-down guy who just, you know, who just can't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And the right thing is to just confess it all, just let it all out. Yeah. But he couldn't do that. He can only think like Joan Alera. So it was like Joan Alera apologizing in a Joan Alera way. And people hated that. But I'm sitting there feeling so sorry for the guy because what's happening in the screen as he's m- making this incredibly painful 
you know, horrifically painful moment in Joan Allera's life was people tweeting, Joan Allera has not proven he is capable of feeling shame. Mm. Like, who's that person? The, that, the best psychologist ever. Yeah. <laughs> or, That's a critique on his performance. Yeah, it exactly. Yeah. It's a critique yeah. on his performance. Yeah. yeah it's what, what, it, what it is in the mind of the person writing that yeah. is it's a critique on, on, his, on, on what's going on inside the guy's head. Joan Allera is just a frigging sociopath. Not capable of feeling shame. You know, all of these things like flashing into this guy's eyes. And to me, that becomes about something, you know, way more than the transgression. You know, so much yeah. more stuff is happening at that moment than just the transgression. Like, why do we use the word sociopath? It's like, you know, we know from history that we use dehumanizing language because we want to hurt people but not feel bad about it. So we come up with dehumanizing words like sociopath or... Which doesn't yeah. really have a definition. No, yeah. I, I mean, just, I, and you know and you what? wrote the book on psychopaths, so yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I would be amazed if Joan Allaire was a sociopath. I think, I think he's, you know, he's got his issues, but I'm certain that sociopathy is not one of them. But we want to use these words. It was the same with Justine Sacker. Do you know what Justine Sacker was being called while she was asleep on a plane, amongst other things? The daughter of the billionaire mining Baron Desmond Sacco, oh. which I thought was absolutely true about just until I met her a couple of days later and I asked her about her billionaire mining father and she said, my dad's a carpet salesman. You know, we want to use these terms. And that becomes so interesting about us, you yeah. know, not that, that's so interesting about us. So, you know, it's up to people to decide whether that was fair or, or unfair on Jonah. I mean, I said at the time, if Jonah had been up for murder, you know, this was an actual court and the jury was yelling out, you know, while the accused has a chance right. to try to explain. And the jury's yelling out, sociopath, we would not be for that. You know? Right, and even we in the media in describing the story, if it were, would have to, as a pro forma thing, say allegedly. Which right. we never... Yeah, yeah which we... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know... Imagine if that had been an actual court. Imagine if that was a scene in Making a Murderer. Whose side would we be on? Yeah, and and Jonah Lair, Mike Daisy, them aside, I have enormous sympathy for Justine Sacco. Even the dentist who shot the lion, you know, it's legal to shoot a lion. And they wrote a compelling articles that lion shooting tourism is what keeps Botswana thriving. And furthermore, you eat chicken, so shut up. <laughs> yeah, and, and furthermore, I remember somebody saying to me actually that day, somebody tweeted me to say, I can't believe people are bringing up the sort of hamburger analogy. Like, And I was thinking, I'm feeling that hamburger analogy. It's not analogy. the worst analogy. Everyone's yeah. ever posed with a fish. Like, that's the difference between the amount of opprobrium visited upon this guy and everyone who has a picture with a game fish, just the the physiology of a lion versus a fish, that's it? That's yeah. what it's all based on? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that story, you know, as much as any other, shows that we should look at shamings as, as being always about something more than the transgressions. I, I know you're now the Pope of shame, but maybe you can maintain a Twitter account where you have um, one of those dials, and when the public shaming is going on, you could pronounce it if we're now punching up or punching down. Because <laughs> once we go to pass the point of punching down, yeah. there'll probably be a backlash against those people too. You can never win. Right. Yeah. It is interesting though how we shift from punching up to punching down, but the people doing the punching are always or very often lagging behind. They don't realize they're punching down. They still are tricking themselves into thinking they're still punching up. Yeah. So you've been publicly shamed. John Ronson's book, it's now out in paperback. Thank you, John. Hey, thanks, Mike. 
As a person, a human being in the year 2016, I thought might as well have a website. And as a human being whose name is Mike Pesca, I decided that website would be three W's, then a dot, then MikePesca.com. And it all happened. And it all really happened quite beautifully thanks to Squarespace. Squarespace creates sites that look professionally designed regardless of skill level, in my case, low regardless of how much coding knowledge you have, in my case, none. There are intuitive and easy to use tools. In fact, I went to my website at three W's, then a dot, then Mike Pesca, then dot com, and I updated it today. There is a section of, you know, essentially frequently asked questions. We had one question up there. You know what it was. It was the um peru, da peru, du peru thing. It's answered there. But then I answered another question. That question, what is the lobster? Someone once told me, in defining a word, don't use a more obscure word. But I did it, and that more obscure word was antantwig. Thus, we're calling out for an addition to that section. Squarespace allows it all to happen, enables my dreams and your answers. You can get a free domain if you sign up for a year of Squarespace. I will give out their website. It is not 3wsmikepesca.com. It is squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. And now the spiel, the state of badgering. There was a low today of 24 in Fond du Lac, and the forecast calls for snow in Appleton on Election Day. But the Wisconsin political race is... Come on, you know what I'm going to say. You could do political news with me. The Wisconsin political rate, remember, we're contrasting it with cold stuff, is heating up. Here's the lead graph in the noted chronicler of Wisconsin political news, the Jerusalem Post. Here we go. Republican presidential front-running candidate Donald Trump skipped his new grandson's bris on Sunday to continue campaigning in Wisconsin. Ah, yes, the bris. If you don't know, it is the beautiful and deeply disturbing ritual which allows for the cutting of the boy child's wiener. It is a time when the father and grandfather are allowed to crack all the uncomfortable jokes they want in keeping with Talmudic law. But Trump, who trails Cruz slightly in the polls, did not attend the bris. Perhaps he's fearful it would send the wrong message about only caring about the top 1%. But beyond the fact that Trump, for the second time ever in this race, will stay overnight in a hotel in a state where he's campaigning, even beyond that fact, Wisconsin's a little weird. It's unique. For instance, we're being told all the time about this thing they call Wisconsin nice, a play on Minnesota nice. But they're in the upper Midwest. They're a little repulsed by Trump. Not nice enough. Okay, I'll buy that. But they're attracted to Ted Cruz? Isn't that like trading in Dracula for Nosferatu? Weirder still is the local politician who the pundits are treating like he's running in this race, Paul Ryan. On ABC's This Week, Juan Williams called him the invisible name on the ballot and said this of the Wisconsin Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan, though, is a fre very fresh face. A fresh, fresh face. The guy who was the losing vice presidential candidate last time out, who didn't win his home state for the Republicans. What a fresh face. You know, I, I used to cover sports, and this has all the elements of a desperate team, a Hail Mary pass, a figure the media can't help talking about. Paul Ryan has become the Tim Tebow of Republican politics. But if you want a really fresh face in Wisconsin politics, have I got a fresh face for you. He is the very first elected official in the state of Wisconsin to come out and endorse Donald Trump. He is, I think this is true still, the highest elected official to endorse Donald Trump in the state. 
He is Assemblyman. He is James Edming. You might know him as James Jimmy Boy Edming. Jimmy Boy is a 70-year-old former teacher, former convenience store owner, and frozen pizza business owner. Jimmy Boy is from Ladysmith, Wisconsin. He represents the 78th Assembly District. And he indeed does not mind if you call him Jimmy Boy. You can call me Jim. You can call me Jimmy. You can call me Jimmy Boy. Edming is my last name. Just don't call me late for supper. Now, Jimmy Boy, I've been, I've been watching a lot of Jimmy Boy. Jimmy Boy usually likes to start with a joke. No, that didn't even count. You probably figured out that didn't count, the don't call me late for supper thing. Here's a more typical and, in fact, more frequent Jimmy Boy joke. And I'll, I'll start him off because he rambles a little. Guy walks into a bar. Take a Jimmy Boy. Went inside. There was not a soul there. Looked around, and, and here's a robot behind the bar. So this robot says, I can help you with my friend. Guy said, well, have a martini. So the robot mixed him up a martini. It was the best martini he'd ever had. They had a little cheap talk going. Pretty soon the old robot, he says to the guy, he says, hey, he says what's your IQ? All right, I'm, I'm coming back in here. Going to telescope this thing. So the guy says, I got an IQ of 150. Because, you know, when Jimmy Boy told the joke, he says, I have an IQ of 240. But that's too high. No one has an IQ of 240. It took me out of the joke. Made me wonder if Jimmy Boy was unacquainted with high IQs. But anyway, guy says, I got an IQ of 150. And the robot starts talking to the guy about quantum physics and string theory and so forth. So the guy says goodbye and leaves. A little while later, guy walks into the same bar again. The robot's still there, pours him a drink. Robot asks, what's your IQ? And this time, this time I'll let Jimmy Boy take it from another speech. This is the 2009 Republican dinner. The guy said, well, he says, my IQ is 100. Then the old robot says, well, he said, you know, what do you think of that Packer game the other night where the Vikings took him? And what I think of the price of haircuts went up and, you know, just talked about plain common ordinary things. So then the guy leaves after having this regular guy talk. And then he walks into the bar again. Here we're back to Jimmy Boy for Senate.com kickoff event. Walks in the door, same thing, little cheap talk, and the robot says, what's your IQ? The guy says, well, my IQ is 50. Robot says, are you still glad you voted for Obama? <laughs> and, and, there, and there's some truth in that joke, and, and why I... Actually, there is not a lot of truth in that joke. There's no robot bartenders. But if there were, it'd be true that they were displacing the working man. And if that were the case, then Donald Trump would fight against those martini-making robots. And by gum, he'd have the Mexicans pay for it. I like Jimmy Boy. He's folksy. He's down-to-earth. He's self-deprecating. I'm going to send you kids to college. But I'm not going to send you to Taylor County Teachers College where that Jimmy Boy graduated from. And he's the first elected official in Wisconsin to endorse Trump. And he's the most prominent elected official in Wisconsin to endorse Trump. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel found a second official. He's officially an official. His name is Van Mobley. He's the president of the Thienesville Village Board. He was an unsuccessful primary candidate for state school superintendent. Trump's not doing so well in the polls there. But no matter, he's the front runner still. He's going to retain that status as they go to the New York primaries. And in the New York primaries, he's just going to add to his lead. But still, for all the Jimmy Boy and Van Mobley endorsements, it doesn't look like Trump is going to win the majority of the delegates. So no matter how Wisconsin goes, even no matter how New York goes, the real contest is looking like it's going to be on the convention floor in Cleveland. And you don't need a genius robot bartender to tell you that will be a really high wall for Trump to overcome. There's some truth to that.
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi once threw Bobka at the Bulgarian parliament in Sofia. Steve Liktai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, once threw Cheese Danish at the Turkish parliament. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, once let loose a turkey inside the Danish parliament. The gist has actually been to the Fokenting in Copenhagen. That's the parliament. We were looking for Bjorgen. We didn't see her. We took pictures that said Fokenting and sent it to our friend Fokenflick and called it a very good day. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.